if you have your Bibles open to Mark 11, I invite you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Mark 11, starting in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we've been walking through this second half of the book of Mark, what we've been doing is following Jesus on a journey. This journey that Jesus is on is to Jerusalem, where ultimately he will go to the cross. And here in Mark chapter 11, Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem. And over the rest of the book of Mark, we're going to be walking through the last week of Jesus' life, of Holy Week, beginning here. Now, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, but he doesn't come to Jerusalem just on any week. It's not just a normal week in the year. Rather, it's Passover week. It's one of the biggest times of festivals, biggest Jewish festivals in all the Jewish calendar. And so there are people from all over the known world, Jews from all over the known world, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And at Passover, what Jews are celebrating is the fact that God had led them out of slavery in Egypt. If you've grown up in church, you're probably familiar with the story that the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God promises Moses to bring them out. And he does that through sending plagues. And the last of these plagues was this Leslie's place was the death of the firstborn son of those in Egypt. But God made a way for his people to be protected. He said, if you sacrifice a lamb and you, spray, or you kill a lamb and you put the blood on the doorpost, we will pass over you and your firstborn will live. Hence, the Passover. And after this, the people of Israel left Egypt and God led them to the promised land. So the Jews are gathered together to, to, to celebrate, celebrate this. And just to give you an idea of what this celebration would look like, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. In fact, Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that at one Passover, there would be more than 200,000 sacrifices made in the temple. 200,000 animals sacrificed. It was crazy. It was a crazy time in Jerusalem. And Jesus arrives into this time. He arrives into this atmosphere of excitement and this atmosphere of tension because the world knows that he is coming. 
And at the beginning of chapter 11, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he doesn't just like walk into the city unnoticed, right? He walks in with everyone looking. Not everyone sees him. Jesus, while outside the city, tells two of his disciples to go and get him a colt that had never been ridden. And he hops on this colt and he rides into the city. And when he's riding into the city, the people gather around and they start shouting, Hosanna, save us. And they begin laying down palm branches and their coats on the ground in front of Jesus. And the reason that they're doing this, the reason they're welcoming Jesus this way is because historically this is how Israel recognized a new king. In 2 Kings, when Jehu is recognized as the new king of Israel, the people lay down their coats, they lay down these palm branches as a recognition that the king has arrived, that they have this new king. And so the Jews welcoming Jesus are celebrating the fact that this new king had arrived. So while they're, they're celebrating this new king arriving, as they're celebrating Passover, the people in Jerusalem remember how God liberated them from slavery in Egypt. And now, with this arrival of Jesus, they're anticipating the messianic liberation from the Romans. But Mark tells us in the text we're going to see today, Jesus brings something they don't expect. And it begins on that night of his triumphal entry. After Jesus welcomed to the city, he goes to the temple. And it says there in verse 11 that he looks around. Jesus walks into the temple and he simply looks around and sees what's going on. And it is what happens as a result of this looking around is is what we see in the following verses that we're going to look at today. What Jesus sees in the temple, what he sees as he goes in there, has a massive effect on him. And he knows that he has to act. And so in preparation for this big day that's coming, he heads back home to Bethany where he's staying. He heads back to hang out with his friends before the day that we're going to look at. See, on that following day, it says there in verse 12, Jesus gets up in the morning and goes back to Jerusalem. And on his way back to Jerusalem from Bethany, it says that he was hungry. It's a normal thing when you're traveling to be hungry. And he sees a fig tree that's covered in leaves. So he walks over to get a snack from this fig tree. But when he gets there, he sees that there's no fruit on the snack. And then Mark says something interesting there. Look at the text there, what he says there. He says he walks over there and he sees nothing. Why? Because it's not fig season. Now when we read this, what pops into our mind is, okay, if it's not fig season, then why is Jesus walking over there to get a fig? It would have been common knowledge for people at this time to know when fig season is at. Like I'm pretty sure it's probably common knowledge for people in Indiana to know when it's time to go pick corn, right? They would know when it was fig season. So that pops into our minds when we read that, what is going on here? Why is Jesus going over to this tree if he knows there's not going to be figs on it? Now, while I have enjoyed my fair share of fig newtons, I'm not an expert on figs. So this week, as I'm trying to figure out what Jesus is doing, I had to do a little research to learn about figs. And here's what I found out. I think this is going to help us understand what Jesus is doing here. 
See, after the fig harvest in late summer, early fall, these little buds pop up on the branches of fig trees. And these little buds stay there all the way through the winter, and they begin to grow. And they develop into these small green figs. And then in the spring, this tree begins to develop leaves. And so people knew that when they saw a fig tree with leaves on it, they would, there would be these small figs. Now, these figs were not as, as tasty as some people think regular figs are, but they were good for travelers, right? It's kind of like when you're traveling and you're hungry. There's not something you really want to eat, but you just grab something because you're hungry and you need something. And so these little small figs were just little snacks that travelers would grab as they walked through. So when Jesus sees this tree that has these leaves, he's expecting to see these small green figs to get a snack. But when he gets there, he looks in the tree and he sees that there are none of these. There are none of these small green figs that should have been there. See, outwardly this tree is showing all the signs of having fruit, but there is no fruit. It is bare. Then Jesus does something that seems way out of his character. He sits there and he curses the tree. He says to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. He curses this tree because it doesn't have any fruit on it. And this thing, see, this, this action by Jesus seems way out of his character. To the point that many people have rejected Jesus because of this story. They look at Jesus and they see him acting out in anger like this. And they said, there's no way this guy can be the Messiah, the Savior. Look what he does to this tree. And if we're honest with ourselves, if Jesus is just having a temper tantrum here, we have a problem. We need to figure out what is going on here. Why is Jesus cursing this tree? The first thing we need to understand is first, Jesus is not just hangry, right? It's not just that he is angry. He is not having a temper tantrum. He is not acting like your child in the back seat of the car when they ask for a snack, but you don't have one. Right? He is not losing his mind. He doesn't start snapping at people like sometimes we do at 3 o'clock in the afternoon just because we're tired and we're hungry. That is not what's happening to Jesus here. What Jesus is doing, rather, is he's using this tree as a real-life parable. See, Jesus is not only the Messiah, but Jesus is a master teacher. So when he sees this tree with no fruit... He recognizes it as a perfect opportunity to teach his disciples. And what is he trying to teach his disciples? He's trying to teach them something about Israel. See, throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, the fig tree was used as an image to represent the people of Israel. When God's blessing was being poured out on Israel, the prophet would say that Israel was like a fruit-bearing fig tree. But in the majority of cases when Israel was referred to as a fig tree, it was when they were being judged by God for the rebellion against him. And they were not bearing any fruit because God was judging them. He was pouring out punishment on them. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples what Israel is like. He wants his disciples to understand that 
Israel, Jerusalem at this time, is full of all this religious activity that's going on. There are hundreds of thousands of people. There are sacrifices being made. There's all these rituals going on. So there's all these leaves of religiosity going on, but there's no fruit. He wants his disciples to see that. That when Jesus went to Jerusalem the, other, the day before and he went to the temple and looked around, that's what he saw. Leaves but no fruit. Jesus is teaching them about Israel. And the religious leaders, the, the people attending, they're just like what Jesus talks about in Matthew 15. There are people who draw near with their mouth and honor the Lord with their lips while their hearts are far from him. This is what Jesus sees in Israel. And because of this lack of fruit bearing, Jesus, like an Old Testament prophet, announces judgment on the people and judgment on the temple when he says that they will never bear fruit again. And notice what Mark says about the disciples there at the end of verse 14. He says, and his disciples heard it. And his disciples heard it. Now, this teaches us a couple things. First, for Mark to know that the disciples heard it, he had to be talking to a disciple who heard it. So this tells us this is coming from an eyewitness. But more than that, when this word heard is used, it doesn't mean they just heard it with their ears. It means that the disciples understood it, which should be shocking, right? The disciples actually understood something that Jesus was saying, right? They don't have a good track record there. But Mark is telling us the disciples understood that Jesus was saying this was true of Israel, that they were like a tree who had no fruit. Now, if we're honest with ourselves and if we really examine ourselves, we can say pretty quickly that this is not just a problem for first century Israel. This is not just a problem for people who from long ago. This is a problem for us. It's a problem for many churches and for many of us as individuals. What do I mean? See, just like the Jews in the temple, we can live lives that that look good, that are full of rhythms and activities that we as followers of Jesus are supposed to be doing, like going to church, going to Bible studies, serving in kids' ministry, serving the community, going on mission trips. We can fill our schedule and our lives with all these good things all these leaves but have no spiritual fruit and that's a problem because what Jesus is looking for what God is looking for in his people are fruit is our fruit that's what he's looking for he wants his people to be a people who don't just do religious things don't just do activities that that are good they're not the point these things that we do as followers of Jesus, are call, are, we do them so that they will produce fruit in us. So we come to church, why? Because we want to hear the word preached. We want to sing the good news of the gospel. We pray. We want to spend time with other followers of Jesus. So that as we're reminded of the gospel, we go out through the week and we live it out and share it with other fruit people. We bear fruit. We read the Bible in the morning and we pray, not just because it's what we're supposed to do, but because we know that we need that if we're going to be the people God has called us to be and to bear fruit. Religious activities 
are all, we do these things, we come to church, we do these things, not just for the activity itself, but because of the what God does through them in us. So the question is, is why, why, if we're doing these things, are we not seeing the fruit? Why are the things that we're doing so often just like the leaves? They're covering, covering up the fact that we don't have any fruit. I think there's, there's two reasons, but they both come down to one thing. Motivation. The motivation behind why we're doing these things. While we're doing these good things that we're supposed to be doing. For some of us, the reason that we, we come to church and do these good activities that followers of Jesus are supposed to do is because we want to be accepted by people around us. We want other people to see what we're doing and think well of us or to accept us. We feel that pressure, right? Like obviously in our world today, there's great cultural pressure to go away from the church and to push away from the church. But there's also in our community pressure to be a part of a church so that we look good to the people around us. That still exists. Maybe it's not that kind of pressure. Maybe it's family pressure. You know that when you get home this afternoon, your mom's going to call and ask if you took your family to church. And so you're thinking, ah, we have to go to church because I just can't stand another call from my mom asking that, right? We feel this pressure, this motivation to be accepted, to be thought well of. And so we come to church. And it's normal, right, to want to be a, to want to be a part of a community, to belong. We want you to belong here at Stones. But this is not the main motivation for the things that we do. If it becomes the main motivation, what we're going to see is we're going to be like this tree. We're going to be doing all this religious activity, but there's not going to be any fruit coming forth in our lives. But maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not your motivation. There is another motivation that leads us to, be, to being not fruit-bearing trees. And that is that we believe that by doing these religious activities, by doing these good things, in some way we will earn God's love, acceptance, forgiveness and blessing we think by coming to church reading our bible doing these good things that some way those things make god love us more or they will lead to god blessing our lives even if you would never admit that with your mouth even if you know intellectually in your mind that you are saved by grace through faith and there is nothing that you can do to make god love you more or love you less Sometimes in our hearts, we don't believe it. And so we do these things because we think it will make, us God, make God love us more. Do you know how to see if that's you? If that's what's motivating you? Let me give you just a quick example that may be familiar to you. Let's say it's Sunday morning, and you decide for whatever reason, you decide not to come to church. Maybe it's a, a legitimate reason. Maybe something's going on where you just can't make it, but you don't come to church. But then as the day goes on, later in that afternoon, something bad happens. You get a flat tire. You and your spouse are fighting. Your kid is being just terrible. You get sick. Oh, something bad happens in your day. If the first thought in your mind is, well, this is what I get for not going to church today, then friend... You're coming to church because you believe that by coming to church, God's going to love you and bless you. And that is not the proper motivation. 
So we come to church because we are, as if we're followers of Jesus, we are loved and accepted by God. And we want to know him more. We don't come to church expecting God to bless us and love us more by being here. God's love is not like our love. Our love goes like this, right? God's love is steady and the same. Like I said a minute ago, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. God loves you. And that is why we do these things. That's the proper motivation. It's not to be fitting in with the people around you. It's not to make you God love you more. The proper motivation for living this life, for doing these things, is because God has loved you in Jesus. It's the gospel. The reason we come to church is because of what Jesus has done for us. Brothers and sisters, friends, Jesus loved you so much that while you were in your sin and rebellion, he came to save you through his perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. And he did this not because of anything you can do. I mean, really, what in the world do we have to offer the king of the universe? No, it's not because of anything that we can do. He does this for his glory and because he loves you. And we have to let that be the motivation. We have to remind ourselves of that. When it begins to creep into our minds that we need to do these things so that we're accepted and loved by other people or accepted and loved by God, we have to remind ourselves that the creator of the universe loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. And let that be the motivation. Let that change our hearts. And as that changes our hearts, what we're going to begin to see in our lives is we're going to begin to bear fruit. We're going to begin to bear spiritual fruit and Paul tells us in Galatians 5 what this spiritual fruit is it's love it's joy it's peace patience kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness and self-control when we have the gospel changing us we produce these fruit so the question for us this morning as we look at this, par- this living parable that Jesus gives is are we like that tree? Are we doing all these things so that the world around us thinks that we're fruit bearing, that we're a healthy follower of Jesus, but in reality there's no fruit. And the thing about this that is so dangerous, friends, is that nobody knows what's true except for you and maybe your spouse. And so the only way to find out if this is really you is by us examining our own hearts. And that's something that we need to do and something we'll have a time to do later in the service, examining our hearts to make sure that this is not us. So Jesus lays out this living parable of this fig tree to show what Israel's like. But he's not done. His day is just getting started. Because remember, Jesus went to the temple and he saw this religious activity with no fruit, but he also saw what was going on with the temple and he needs to take care of that. See, when Jesus visited the temple today before he saw these money changers and um, people selling animals for sacrifices in the temple. Now those things are not in and of themselves bad. 
those were part of religious worship for Jews, was they needed to have money changed over in order to pay taxes to the temple. They needed to have animals to offer sacrifices. Because I, I don't know if this is true, but I can only imagine it might be a little bit of a pain to carry a sheep for miles and miles and miles to bring it to the temple, right? And so it makes sense that there would be a place there at the temple where you could buy animals for sacrifices. And so the problem is not that there are, are money changers and people selling things, that, selling things. It's the location of where they're doing these things. Historically, this was done outside of the temple on the Mount of Olives. But not long before Jesus' life, they moved it into the temple. Why? Well, one, it's, it's more convenient, right? Two, we're not going to talk a lot about this this morning, but the religious leaders of the time were corrupt and they were making money because it was in the temple and not out of the temple. And so it made sense. It, they moved it into the temple. So the problem was the location. But the thing is, is not only was it in the temple, but it was also the problem of its location within the temple. See, all this activity was happening in what was called the court of the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles are anyone who is not a Jew. So for most of us here, we are Gentiles. It's the nations. In this court where all this was happening, where all these animals were, remember, 200,000 animals were sacrificed at one time. This is craziness. All that is happening in the court of the Gentiles. The only place that the Gentiles could come and worship God. This was the only area that they could come to, but it was full of this circus making it impossible for them to worship. Making it impossible for anyone who was not of Jewish descent to come into the temple and actually worship the God who created any, everything. In fact, there was a sign that was leading from the Gentile area to the Jewish area of the temple that said if any Gentile tried to leave this court of the Gentiles and come deeper into the temple, then they would be killed. And so Jesus, after seeing this, comes back to the temple. He comes back to the temple and begins throwing people out. He begins to throw the people out who are buying and selling. He throws the table of the money changers over. He does all this thing. He puts on this grand, this, this grand display. And often we think that Jesus is just going in there just angry again. He is just mad as all get out. And don't get me wrong, he is mad at what's going on. But he's not, again, he's not out of control. This is not Jesus just losing his cool. Because notice what he's doing, even in the midst of all this, it says there. It says there that he was teaching them. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're ever just losing your cool, it's really hard to slow down and start teaching somebody something. So Jesus is teaching them, and he quotes Isaiah, and he says to everyone around them, he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is doing this because the people of Israel were created to be a light of God's goodness to the Gentiles, and the, gen the temple was to be a place where the nations came to worship God. But rather than bringing the Gentiles to worship, they rejected them and pushed them away and made it impossible for them to come in and worship the one true God. 
And this hatred, this rejection of Gentiles, is this, this is just a taste of what it was like among Jews at the time. The common teaching was that when the Messiah came, he would come and he would clear out the promised land of all Gentiles. And if necessary, he would do it by force. And what that says is that the Jews of the time believed that Gentiles, the nations, had no place in the kingdom of God. And the problem with that, brothers and sisters, the problem with that is as we look at the Bible, what we see is that the reason that God chose the people of Israel was not just for themselves. The reason he chose the people of Israel, again, was to be a light to the, light to the Gentiles. So that the world would know the one true God. And that they would come and worship him. So by filling the court of Gentiles with all this stuff, what was happening, even if it was not explicit, it was implicit, was the people of Israel were saying, we don't want anything to do that. They were rejecting the purpose for which God had chosen them. If we look back at the Bible, what we see over and over and over is that God's plan is to have a world that is full of worshipers. In Genesis 1, 28, when when God is talking to Adam and Eve, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it. What he's telling them is to have, have a bunch of babies and let them spread out over the earth and they will worship me all over my creation. That was the plan. But of course, we we know the story. They disobey God. They rebel against God. Sin enters in. But even though there's this rebellion against God, God does not leave humanity on his own. He stays coarse. His plan is the same, to see the world filled with worshipers. And so what he does is he chooses a man and his family. He comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to use you, Abraham. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he says to Abraham, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless, I will bless, those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God chose Abraham and his family to be a blessing to the nations. And it keeps going. Solomon, he's commissioning the first temple, right? He builds the temple. He's commissioning it. And at the end of his prayer of commission, look what he says. Let these words of mine, which I have pled before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of the people of Israel as each day requires. Why? That all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord is God. There is no other. Solomon's commissioning the temple and he says, the reason that this is being built is so that the world would know that God is, the Lord is God and there is no other. Finally, Jesus quotes Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah again is talking about the nations. He says to them, verse three, this is a long text, but read with me. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses the things that pleases me and holds fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. 
and the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, the temple, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. As J.T. Payne says, rather than Israel's election being a way to exclude the nations from God's blessing, it was the means of grace whereby the Gentiles would come to know him. And the people of Israel said here, no. God chose the people of Israel so the world would know who God is. They've rejected that purpose. And so Jesus turns over the tables. Friends, just like God set apart the people of Israel in the Old Testament to be a light to the nations, now he has set apart his church to be a light to the nations. We at Stones Crossing, we exist to glorify God and to make him known among all nations. That is why the church exists, to make him known. And we must never forget that. We never must never make this mistake of becoming so self-absorbed in ourselves that we think we exist for just ourselves. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the glory of God and for the nations. And the nations are anyone who is not a follower of Jesus. Whether they're here in Greenwood, whether they're in Chicago or Detroit, or whether they're living in Mumbai. We as a church, the church of Jesus, exists to be a light to people who are walking in darkness. This is what we are called to. And we cannot make the mistake that the people of Israel did. Because if we do, there will be judgment. If you look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus dictates letters to John. And these letters are to churches. And it's Jesus warning these churches, if they do not remember why they exist and repent of their sins, then he will put out their lampstand. In other words, he will remove, their, he will remove the spirit from them. So we cannot dally around and just think that this is not something that's real for us too. That was true for the church of Ephesus, and it's true for Stones Crossing Church. We must always remember why we exist. We are not a cruise ship of people who say they're followers Jesus to gather together and live life together and just enjoy each other while the world is an ocean away. We are, we are a battleship. We are a, um, my goodness, we send out planes, what do they call it, aircraft carrier, right? We're an aircraft carrier. We come back here on Sunday mornings to refuel so that we can go out and we can share the good news of the gospel with others. We must never forget that. Because there will be consequences. Just like there's consequences for Israel. So on the week where Jesus will die, he tells his disciples that this temple that they're in, that the, this temple is like a fig tree that does not bear fruit. The people of Israel are like a fig tree that don't bear fruit. And he goes in and he kicks all the people out and he teaches teaches them and the, and the religious leaders look at him and what he's doing and what he's saying and they say we must destroy this guy we have to get rid of him and I think the reason at this moment they're so passionate and upset about it is because they really understand what Jesus was doing 
like the disciples heard what Jesus was saying about the fig tree, they're hearing what he's saying about them in the temple. They understood that what Jesus was doing was not just cleansing the temple. He was not just cleansing the temple so they could go back to offering sacrifices like it was before. Jesus is saying, this is the end of the temple. Like the fig tree in verse 21, the temple is now withered and dead. Why? Because of their lack of fruit and the rejection of the purpose, yes. But also because of what was going to happen on Friday of that week. What we call Good Friday. On that Friday, Jesus goes to the cross as the final sacrifice as the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus dies on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. If we will trust in him and receive him, he is the only sacrifice that we need. It's not the blood of animals that will forgive our sins, but it's the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus, that takes away the sins of the world. We no longer need a high priest to stand before us in God because we have the great high priest, Jesus who makes a way for us to be in relationship with God, who our prayers, as we pray, we know that our prayers are heard because of Jesus. We don't need a temple because through the work of Jesus, God's presence comes to dwell within each of us who trust in him. So we are his temple. Jesus is announcing that all of these things that happen in the temple, they're now happening in him. He is the answer. He is what all this is pointing to, is Jesus. And now he tells us that we are his temple and we're to go out and to be this light to the world. We are not to be a fig tree with a bunch of leaves and no fruit. But we are to be a tree that is bountiful with fruit. So that we, the world can eat of it, right? We bear fruit so that other people can enjoy it. That's who we're called to be. We're called to be a light of the gospel to the nations. This is what Jesus is leading to here. So that leads us to ask questions of ourselves. First, if you're here this morning and you're, and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know something. That your sin, that your rebellion against God, it deserves God's judgment. It deserves punishment. But God in his grace and mercy, he loves people and he loves you. And he loves you so much that he came to earth and lived a perfect life in your place. Died on the cross, taking the punishment that you deserve for your sins. And rose from the dead so that you can have new life. Jesus is the answer to your sin problem. So trust in him. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, what I challenge you to do is ask yourself, am I bearing fruit? Am I bearing fruit? Do I have fruit growing on me? Am I showing love, joy, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, all those fruit that Paul talks about? Or am I just going through the motions and doing these things? Friend, if you're just going through the motions and you're just motivated by what other people think of you or you're trying to earn God's favor, guess what it's just going to lead you to? Exhaustion. It is going to lead you to the end. And you're just going to be at a point where you're like, I just don't want to do this anymore. I just don't care anymore. It's just not worth it. It's just too hard. It is going to wear you out. 
But when you're reminded of the good news of the gospel, when you lean onto Jesus as a reason for why you're doing these things, what you find is not weariness. What you find is rest. So you come to church because you know you're going to be filled with the word. You're going to hear the gospel. You're going to sing songs glorifying to God. And because you're hearing and feeling these things, you find rest. So I want you to ask yourself, Are you bearing fruit? And if you're not, remind yourself of the gospel. Don't start trying to do more stuff. Remind yourself of what Jesus has done for you. And when that temptation comes back to be motivated by other things, continually remind yourself of the gospel. Finally, if you're here this morning and you're like, Lee, I'm bearing fruit. I'm living in the gospel right now. Like I feel like the gospel is flowing through my veins. It's motivating me and all I do or at least I'm trying to let it. question for you is, are you being a light to the nations? Are you looking for opportunities to share the gospel with other people at work while you're watching your kids play sports at the, at the restaurant? Are you looking for these opportunities? Are you praying for the lost? Are you reminding yourself that the reason that God saved you is for his glory and for your good and for the nations? If not, ask God to grow in you a desire to see the nations come to him, to see the lost saved, and then be bold in sharing the gospel. So in just a minute, Adam's going to come back up and we're going to, we're going to sing a song, but as we, as we wait for that, I want to challenge that you ask yourselves those questions. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, trust in him. If you have questions about that, come ask me. Are you bearing fruit? And do you have a heart for the nations? I'll spend a moment in quiet prayer and I'll close this in prayer and then we'll sing. God, we thank you so much for the work of Jesus. Thank you so much for what he did for us. That he came to make a way that we could have our sins forgiven. We could be right with you. God, as we examine our hearts and minds, Lord, please let that be the motivation for all that we do. So that we can be people who bear much fruit. So that Stones Crossing would be a church that is known for the people in it who are bearing fruit. And as we bear fruit, as we seek to to be a blessing to those around us, let us not forget the reason that we exist is to be a light of the gospel to those around us. Please help us to be a light. Please motivate us. Help us to think through our lives and ask, how can we make God be glorified around us? How can we glorify God around us? How can we make his name known? Lord, help us to be a people that bear much fruit for your glory, and for the nations. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.